Last week, the text of the morning was 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. And the main point of the sermon was that we should make it our aim not to base our faith nor anybody else's on the wisdom of men, but rather on the power of God. And that came basically from verse 5 of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. And I came down really hard against the wisdom of men. And then standing over here after service, uh, my friend Paul Wyden, who came back, went out, and I asked Paul what he was doing since he'd finished seminary, and he said he was studying philosophy over at the university. And later on in the week, as I wrote a letter to the visitors, uh, it occurred to me that uh, I wonder what a philosopher thought about all that negative stuff I said about the wisdom of men. So I wrote a little note on the letter And uh, you can tell me, Paul, whether you got it, that uh, I really do believe in philosophy. And you come back this Sunday, which he did, to hear the other side of the coin. Uh, Most of you know, I'm sure, philosophy means love of wisdom, right? And therefore, Christians are going to be hard put to be opposed to philosophy in principle since the very next verse after verse 5 from last week says, But we do speak a wisdom among the mature. There is a wisdom which Christians are commanded to seek and cherish and speak. And in that sense, all Christians are at least amateur philosophers. Now, of course, there have always been and are today philosophers who teach utter nonsense, right? So the university faculties don't have very high esteem among the common folk for that reason. But I've got a caution for all of us outside the university, namely, probably for every university philosopher who is teaching godless things or what we may think are irrelevant things, there are a hundred ordinary, run-of-the-mill, lay people like you and me whose view of life is just as godless and just as destructive. And the difference is they only corrupt their families and their neighbors and and school teachers have bigger audiences. My point is, watch out lest Satan deceive us into thinking that the wisdom of men or what Paul calls the wisdom of the world is only found in the ivory towers of the universities. Brothers and sisters, it is here. It is to Christians that Paul said, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, you recall that last week, the argument from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, went something like this. You cannot base saving faith on the wisdom of men. The reason is that the wisdom of men regards the death of Christ for sins or a crucified king of glory as foolishness. And the reason it does, thirdly, is because the cross, on the one hand, is the most radical indictment of our sin that ever was. If God had to give his own precious, most valuable son to die for us, we must be in an awful way. But on the other hand, the wisdom of men is devoted 100% 
to achieving and maintaining a ground for boasting. And therefore, the two are in conflict and the wisdom of men will never lead a person to believe in the cross of Christ. Now, two things should be evident from that argument from 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. The one is that I've already hinted at, no group of people has a corner on the wisdom of men. The wisdom of man is found among the educated and the uneducated, among the poor and the rich, men and women, and all races. Every one of us, apart from God's spirit, is prone to use our heads to justify ourselves. It happens between husbands and wives when they get into a spat. It happens at work. We're always using our heads to keep our acclaim and our self-esteem and our image Good in people's eyes. We want to maintain a semblance of self-sufficiency, no matter who we are, in or outside the educational institutions. That's the first thing that should be evident. The second thing is this. It is not the use of the mind per se which is evil. It is the use of the mind to come up with falsehoods. It's the motivation that governs the mind. Which means that the alternative to the proud use of the mind is not no use of the mind, but a humble use of the mind. The alternative to arrogant competence is not incompetence, but humble competence. The Bible may condemn the world's wisdom, but it will not give up wisdom to the enemy. The Bible may say that the mind of man is darkened, but the remedy it proposes is not mindlessness, but light. That's why Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 13, and tells us about the wisdom which we speak. And if you haven't opened your Bibles already to 1 Corinthians 2, let's do it together now, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 to 13 is what I'll read. Follow along carefully, and then I'll tell you the questions that I think this text answers, and we'll try to follow those questions through. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit of God searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the spirit of a man which is in him? And so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. And if you have a different translation, we'll talk about that in a minute. I think that this passage 
answers at least four questions about the wisdom we speak. And I'd like to go through these in turn. And the order, as I pondered on this text, that commended itself to me was this. The first thing it answers is, who is it or what sort of people is it who cannot receive the wisdom of God? Secondly, the flip side of that question, what sort of people is it who can receive the wisdom of God and do embrace it? Third, how is the wisdom of God imparted to such people? And fourth and finally, which shows the importance of the first three, what is that wisdom which we speak? Let's take these in turn. First then, who is it that cannot receive the wisdom of God? For some reason, Paul mentions twice in verse 6 and in verse 8, the rulers of this age. And that caught my eye. Why not mention, for example, those Athenian philosophers down in Athens where Paul was rebuffed so brutally? Why focus on people like the scribes and the Pharisees and Pilate? I think there are two reasons. First, the Corinthian church was being infiltrated by a group of false teachers who were causing the people to be very caught up not only with wisdom, the wisdom of the world, but also with power, the sort of things that rulers have. And we can see this in two places. In chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, Not many of you were powerful, and God chose the weak things in the world to shame the powerful. So evidently, Paul knows that there's a problem with a pride in power at Corinth. And the second place is over in chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul, in a very interesting and powerful, ironical way, nails the Corinthians for one of their errors. He says in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians, Already you are filled. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings, rulers. Now, what Paul is doing is saying to them, he doesn't really believe what he just said. We're going to see that by the next line. But he's saying, you Corinthians are already claiming to experience what God has reserved for the age to come. And you're wrong. Here's how he shows it. He says in the next line, Would that you did reign as king so that I, the lowly apostle, might reign with you. And the knife goes in. In other words, Paul knows he has not attained to the status of a ruler or a king. And in wishing that they might attain to it so that he might attain with them, he shows that they haven't arrived yet either. And they're boasting in their power and their kingly Mindset is wrong. And so the first reason why Paul focuses on the rulers of this age in verse 6 and 8, I think, is to show that the wisdom that leads to worldly power and gets you into a position of authority doesn't necessarily lead you to God. Here's the second reason that I think he focuses on the rulers of this age. People like Pilate... And the scribes and Pharisees and elders who cried out, crucify him, are the clearest illustration that a person's wisdom, true wisdom, can be judged by whether they recognize in Jesus the Lord of glory. 
You can tell whether you have the wisdom of God by whether you recognize in the lowly, suffering Jesus the Lord of glory. If they had known the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So, in answer to our first question, who is it that cannot receive the wisdom of God? One answer would be people who are so enamored by the wisdom that leads to worldly power that they cannot see in Jesus the Lord of glory. These will never receive the wisdom of God. They are blinded to it. Now note carefully, lest there be any misunderstanding. It is not having power which blinds us to the wisdom of God. God has chosen to save some powerful people and he has chosen to lift some of his lowly children to very exalted positions of power. It is not having power, it's the hunger for power that blinds a man to the wisdom of God. It is not having a claim, it is that craving for a claim that makes Jesus as he is unbelievable. Now, I think it's really enlightening to go back and look at some of those rulers of this age in the Gospels. There are two places that are really helpful to get an insight into what Paul was probably thinking about when he said the rulers of this age didn't know, had no access to the glory of God or the wisdom of God in Jesus. The first one is John 5, 42 to 44. In John 5, 42 to 44, Jesus exposes what it is about the Jewish leaders, the rulers, which kept them from believing on him. Listen to this. This is really amazing. It's one of the most, one of the most influential texts in my own thinking about the nature of faith. Jesus says to them in 542, I know that you have not the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from God? Or to put it another way, you can't believe on Jesus. You can't see in Jesus the Lord of glory if you are more taken up with getting glory for yourself than you are with finding the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the first example. The second one comes from Mark chapter 11, verse 27, where Jesus' authority is challenged. Mark 11:27. Now, imagine being there at this occasion and ask yourself as I read this, what's the problem with these Jewish leaders, these rulers of this age? They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, there they are, the whole ray, came to him. And they said to him, by what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you a question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, why didn't you believe him? But uh, shall we say from man? 
They were afraid of the people for all held that John was a real prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The amazing characteristic of those scribes and elders, they didn't give a rip for the truth. Jesus asked them a question, and instead of saying to themselves, what's the true answer to that question, what did they say? First thing they said was, how can we keep from being regarded as inconsistent by this crowd? For if we say his authority is from heaven, to be consistent, we'd have to believe on him. And of course, we don't believe on him, and we don't want to be thought inconsistent. And the second question they asked themselves was, how can we keep from being hurt? Because if we say his authority is from men... They like the guy. They think he's a prophet. They might stone us. So I guess we just better keep quiet. Did it ever occur to them? They might just ask what's true. No. And so Jesus says the door is shut to such people. You won't know anything about me as long as that's your attitude to the truth. Pride on the one hand and fear on the other, but no love for the truth. The only thing they were interested in was being thought consistent, maintaining their image before men. And so Jesus says, no access. In other words, it is possible to be so enamored by the wisdom that leads to power and acclaim that all access to the wisdom of God in the Lord of glory is shut. Just like Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that thou hast hidden these things from the wise and understanding and reveal them to babies. And just like he said to Peter, you remember when Peter, quite unlike the scribes and Pharisees, said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus turned to him and said, flesh and blood, the wisdom of man didn't reveal this to you, Peter. My Father who is in heaven revealed that to you. So in answer to the first question, who cannot receive the wisdom of God which we speak? The answer is very simply, nobody can receive it who loves the wisdom that leads to power and acclaim so much that he can't recognize in Jesus, the suffering Messiah, the Lord of glory. That's question number one. Here's the flip side. Question number two. Who can receive the wisdom? What characterizes the kind of people who are wide open to the wisdom of God, who drink it in and receive it with joy? Verse 6 of chapter 2 in 1 Corinthians. We do speak a wisdom among the mature. Now, half of you probably have the King James. And it says, we speak a wisdom to the perfect. Perfect is a bad translation today because it implies sinlessness and flawlessness. And if that were so, Paul wouldn't speak to anybody. The word is translated in the RSV, the New International Version, the New American Standard, as mature. And I have two reasons why I think that that's a good translation and a right one, which will come out in a moment. It's the mature 
to whom the wisdom of God will go home. Who are they? What does that mean? Verse 13, I think, gives the answer. But here there's a translation problem, the one I referred to back when I read the text. The Revised Standard Version says, We impart this, namely this divine wisdom, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. And here's the the phrase that's going to be different probably in, in your text. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. That's the Revised Standard Version. Or more literally, uh, interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people. Now, the alternative in the footnote of the Revised Standard Version, and which is contained in the New American Standard Bible and the King James, is comparing spiritual things to spiritual people. Now, the problem is not that there are two different Greek texts behind verse 13. The problem is that the same Greek word can be translated both ways. We have English words that can mean two things, same in Greek. So the whole question is, which does the context make the more likely? And you can check that out as well as I can. I think the Revised Standard Version is right. I think Paul is saying we interpret spiritual things to spiritual people. The reason that I think that's right is that verse uh, 13 is followed by 14 to 16, which talk not about the comparison of spiritual things with spiritual things, but rather talk about the kind of people who will not receive spiritual things, right? Verse 14, the natural man will not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And that's why verse 13 probably means... Paul speaks spiritual realities to spiritual people, not natural people. People who have the Spirit, not people who don't have the Spirit. And there's a second reason why I think verse 13 should be translated spiritual people and that those spiritual people are the same as the mature in verse 6. And it's this. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. I, brothers was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as carnal or fleshly, as to babes in Christ. What's the opposite of a baby? A mature person. The opposite of a babe is a mature person. But here in 3.1, the opposite is a spiritual person. And therefore, in all likelihood, a mature person in verse 6 is the same as the spiritual person in verse 1 of chapter 3, and therefore the same as the spiritual people in verse 13 of chapter 2. These are the people who are wide open to the wisdom of God, the mature or the spiritual people. What is it now that characterizes this group? There's a lot of misunderstanding about this word spiritual. It does not mean when Paul uses it a specifically religious elite, a person who prays a lot and reads the Bible a lot. That's not what Paul has in mind. A spiritual person is a person led by the Spirit of God. And we can see this really clearly in Galatians 5, 16 to 6, 1. Because in Galatians 5 and 6, Paul says this, you should uh, walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, 
Bear the fruits of the Spirit. And then in the next verse, in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Now if any of you is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. In other words, in the context, what he means is, you who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, namely, meekness, you restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. So what it means to be spiritual is to walk by the Spirit and bear the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's also very helpful, I think, to notice in Galatians 5 the contrast between the spiritual person and the fleshly person. You know, in verses 20 and 21, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The contrast, of course, is the works of the flesh, like enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, and so on. So the opposite of the spiritual person, who is loving and peaceful and kind and patient and gentle and faithful and self-controlled, is the fleshly person who is given to anger and jealousy and spite and revenge and pride. One is being transformed by the Spirit of God. The other is enslaved to that old self-sufficient self called the flesh in Paul. Now, the reason this is helpful to note this contrast is because when we come back to 1 Corinthians 3, the same contrast is there. Look at 3.1. I, brothers, was not able to speak to you as spiritual, but as fleshly, as carnal. It's the same contrast as Galatians 5. And the upshot of this contrast is to show us what the characteristics are of the people who can receive the wisdom of God and who welcome it into their hearts. Because we've already said that they are the spiritual people. So, using Galatians 5, what becomes evident is that the people who are open to the wisdom of God are the people who have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. That was a tremendous surprise to me when I first saw that. And the reason it was a surprise is because I thought that probably the prerequisite to receiving wisdom would be an intellectual prerequisite. And it's not. It's a moral prerequisite, isn't it? It's not a certain level of intelligence or a certain level of education or a certain kind of experience it's moral. It's what you love and what you do as much as or more than what you think. Not education, but sanctification is the prerequisite for receiving the, the wisdom of God. Not natural inborn ability, but supernatural, God-given humility that opens a person's heart to the wisdom of God. Notice how Paul says as much in the next two verses, verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians 3. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you weren't able. But neither now are you able, for you are fleshly, for where there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and walking as mere men? In other words, only the people in whom the Spirit of God is overcoming jealousy and strife, can receive the wisdom of God. The others, like the scribes and Pharisees, are cut off. So in God's order of things, you cannot separate the holiness of your life from the depth of your understanding. 
Not at all. God has revealed his wisdom. And it is a wisdom that he gives to the mature or the spiritual. Not a religious elite, but anybody and everybody who is resting in the promises of God and so is experiencing the power of God to make them loving and joyful and peaceful and kind and patient and faithful and meek and self-controlled. Those are the kinds of people who have a heart that is wide open to the wisdom of God. Now, there's a remarkable confirmation of this in James chapter 3. I can't help but, uh, but cite this. In James chapter 3, verses 13 following, listen to the way James describes the wisdom which is from above as opposed to the wisdom which is of this world. And see if it doesn't jive perfectly with what Paul just said. James 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good life, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This wisdom is not such as comes down from above, but earthly and unspiritual and devilish. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits without insincerity or uncertainty. Therefore, in answer to our second question, who is it? What are the sort of people that surely we want to be, who are wide open to the wisdom of God, the answer is people in whom the Holy Spirit is overcoming strife and jealousy in all the works of the flesh and instead replacing them with the fruit of love and meekness and patience and goodness so that they can see in the suffering Messiah the Lord of glory. But how is it, question number three, that God has imparted his wisdom. It's an amazing claim for a human being, not to mention a sinful human being, to say, I have the mind of Christ. I have the wisdom of God. I know God's wisdom. That is an unbelievably high claim. The answer how that can be is given in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 2. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor entered into the heart of man, what God has prepared for those who love him, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The answer is revelation. The wisdom of God would have never been imagined by men apart from the Holy Spirit. It would have never entered into their farthest imagination. Verse 7 gives the reason it is a secret and a hidden wisdom, a wisdom in a mystery and concealed. And the only way we have any access to it is that God has chosen to reveal his wisdom. Revelation is the act of God whereby something that was once concealed now becomes known among men. Now Paul tells us in verses 10 to 13 the process by which that revelation occurred. He uses an analogy. Among men, 
Nobody knows anybody else's thought except the spirit of that person, their own self-conscious, and anybody whom they choose to tell. So it is with God. Nobody knows the thoughts of God nor plumbs the depths of God's wisdom except one person, the Holy Spirit. And so God can and has imparted his wisdom through the Holy Spirit. Verse 12. We did not receive the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God, in order that we might know the things graciously given to us. Now, there are two possible ways to understand the we in that verse. We did not receive the spirit of the world, but we received the spirit of God. One alternative is to say the we refers to all believers. Everybody who has the Holy Spirit is the person to whom God is revealing his wisdom. The other alternative is to say the we refers only to those people who in the age of the apostles were inspired to have authoritative teaching who then taught others and wrote the books of the New Testament. Now, in the end, it might be impossible to decide with final certainty which of those two is correct. But I think a strong case can be made for the second alternative, namely that when Paul says we did not receive the spirit of the world, he means we apostles, we authoritative a spokesman for God. And the reason I think that's the case is because of the flow of thought between verse 12 and verse 13. The flow of the thought seems to go like this. God gave the Holy Spirit to us so that we could understand the things given to us by God. And now we teach others in words taught by the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to spiritual people. There seems to be a kind of triangle. God reveals to Paul and the other authoritative spokesmen in the apostolic age. They then teach with words taught by the Holy Spirit, that's inspiration, to us. Now, in our day, of course, that wisdom of theirs is mediated to us through the authoritative and written word of the Scripture. And so my answer to the third question, how is it that those who are open to the wisdom of God do, in fact, receive it, is that we receive it on the one hand because God has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. They have mediated it in authoritative, authoritative form in the New Testament and we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to receive it in a spirit of meekness. And now the final question, which shows the importance of all the first three. What is this wisdom of God that we've been talking about? Of course, it'll take an eternity to answer that question. I think no matter how much we discover of the wisdom of God, we will never exhaust it. But there's something we can say something brief and something tremendously encouraging from verses 7 and verse 9 about the nature of this wisdom. Verse 7. We speak a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God foreordained before the ages for our glory or our glorification. Whatever else the wisdom of God is, it is the exercise of the infinite eternal mind of God to devise for his people an infinitely glorious future. Christ was meek and lowly 
and despised and wounded. But he was the Lord of glory. And so it is with his people. They might be lowly and downcast and suffering and rejected. But they are the sons of glory. As Paul said in Romans 8, I do not consider the present sufferings of this age worthy to be compared to the glory that is about to be revealed to the sons of God. Imagine a father, a brilliant father, who loves his son who is far away, but whose son is coming home. And that father's brilliance and all his insight is in the sway of his Love. He knows every preference that son has. He knows every inclination. He knows him inside out. He knows the joys that will sink down deepest and last the longest. And he aims to give that son that joy. If you can imagine a homecoming like that, then you have a little inkling of what the wisdom of God is engaged in doing For his people, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the farthest imagination of man, God is now preparing for those who love him by his wisdom. And that makes knowing that wisdom very important, doesn't it? Finally, remember this. The rulers of this age who love the wisdom of men, which gets power are passing away, verse 6. They are coming to nothing. Don't ever be deceived by this world's display of power. They are coming to nothing, verse 6 says. It is not for such ones that God is preparing that display and that banquet of glory. On the contrary, it is for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose Those who cherish Christ and who precisely in the suffering Christ recognize the Lord of glory. These are the ones that have ears to hear the wisdom of God. So let's make every effort. Let's bend all of our effort not to hunger for power and not to be full of jealousy and strife, but in meekness to open ourselves to the wisdom of God.